0: Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, David Simpson tells us about John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough. He explains why many people believe that he was Britain's greatest general. Please note, this talk contains information about battles and military campaigns in the late 17th and 18th centuries, and also the aftermath of the Battle of Sedgemoor in 1685.
1: Today's talk is broken into two sections. The first deals with John Churchill's early life, his rise to fame, love, marriage and betrayal. He lived in a turbulent epoch, but throughout the last decades of the 17th century, he became increasingly powerful and wealthy. Then we look at the War of the Spanish Succession, how Marlborough rose to military predominance before he fell from grace with accusations of fraud and warmongering, or then examine these accusations to see if they can be supported by evidence. Finally, we will review his place in the annals of British military history. The Duke of Marlborough is arguably Britain's greatest ever general. A master of the military arts of strategy, tactics and logistics, he never tasted defeat at the head of his army during the war of the Spanish succession between 1701 and 1714. His enemy was the France of Louis XIV, intent as ever on European domination. But Marlborough, at Blenheim, Ramillies, Udenarde, and Malplaquet, fought the cream of the French army to a standstill. Long before the phrase coalition manager was thought of, Marlborough commanded a polyglot army of British, Dutch, Danish and German troops and bent it to his will. But Marlborough was always more than just a soldier. He was central to the court of Charles II, James II, William III, Queen Anne and George I. By his political wisdom he held together successive cabinets across the end of the 17th and early 18th centuries and has been described even by his political opponents as the greatest minister this country had ever seen. His family connections were central to his rise to power, His sister was a mistress of James II, while his wife, Sarah Jennings, had an exceptionally close and stormy relationship with Queen Anne. By these connections did Marlborough first rise and then fall from grace. Soldier and statesman he may have been, but Marlborough was always a controversial figure. From growing up in genteel poverty to becoming infamous for his incredible wealth, Marlborough always skirted close to disaster. He is an enigmatic figure, focused and brilliant on one hand, while on the other, accused of avarice and double-dealing. For example, he accepted at the age of just 20 a pension from one of the mistresses of Charles II for services vigorously rendered. Later, Marlborough's rise was owed almost exclusively to his relationship with James II, yet Marlborough deserted James during the Glorious Revolution of 1688. However, Marlborough then remained in contact with James and the exiled Jacobite court in Paris. But despite walking this tightrope of treason, Marlborough never lost sight of his focus of bringing the French to the point of military defeat and certainly never lost the confidence of his foot soldiers who revered him and called him Corporal John for his concern for their well-being. John Churchill was born on the 26th of May 1650, probably in Ash House in Mewsbury in Devon to the very first Winston Churchill and his wife Elizabeth. Winston had fought on the losing side in the English Civil War and had had to pay a large fine to the victors. This left the Churchills homeless and quite broke. And so they were taken in by Elizabeth's mother, Lady Drake, who, unfortunately for the Royalist Winston, was a staunch parliamentarian. Winston had no money, no property and no influence in the dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell and survived solely by the beneficence of his mother-in-law. Living in genteel poverty, I think, explains John's attitude to money. Having grown up without it, he famously acquired as much as he could when he had the opportunity. But as the 1650s passed and Cromwell's dictatorship crumbled, the English political class swung behind the restoration of the Stuart monarchy in the guise of Charles II. The issue that was in the forefront of late 17th century political discourse wasn't so much monarchy versus republicanism, but rather the nature of that monarchy. Absolute versus Parliamentarian and Catholic versus Protestant. The restoration of the monarchy fundamentally changed the course of John Churchill's life. His father became the MP for Weymouth and later Lyme Regis and enjoyed the patronage of major political figures in the Restoration Court. This included advisors to James, Duke of York, who was to become John Churchill's ticket to fame. Winston and Elizabeth had nine children, of which only five survived to adulthood. While his two younger brothers, George and Charles, found later fame as Admiral of the Blue and General of the Foot Guards, it was to John's older sister, Arabella, that the family owed its climb up the social ladder. For around 1666, she became the latest mistress to James, Duke of York, the future James II. Arabella was only 19 at the time, and she later bore James at least four children. She also obtained for John a position as page to James, Duke of York. While John was a page, his interest was always in joining the Restoration Army. So in 1667, at the age of 17, John obtained an Ensigns Commission in the Foot Guard. It was probably with the influence of the Duke of York that John obtained this commission at the lowest officer rank in the army, because he did it without purchase. Because even this low rank was beyond the means of John, so began two relationships. The one with the future James II would founder in betrayal and a whiff of treason while the one with the army would raise both it and John Churchill to the heights of fortune and glory. Churchill's first overseas assignment is thought to be in the garrison of Tangiers in North Africa. Tangiers was part of the dowry of Catherine of Braganza when she married Charles II. It was a hot and mosquito-infected posting. It was also an active posting, as the local moors frequently attacked the city. It is likely that it was here that John first heard guns fired in anger and saw the bloody side of the martial life. While Tangier was hot, his return to London in about 1670, John was introduced to the steamiest side of life. John returned from Tangier's bronzed handsome and with the confidence of the returning hero and soon entered a relationship that would carry him even further up the social ladder. John Churchill was always attracted to strong women and that was certainly true of his relationship with Barbara Castlemaine, Duchess of Cleveland. She was actually John's second cousin once she moved, and they had become close friends before he went to Tangier. When he came back, they became biblically close. At 30, Barbara was 10 years John senior, and thoroughly experienced in the art of love, as befitted a mistress of Charles II. She gave Charles at least five children, but had fallen out of favor of the monarch before she and John started their relationship. Even so, it would be a brave man who carried on with the mother of the king's bastard children. And there are stories of John, naked, jumping out of a bedroom window when the king dropped by unexpectedly, and on another occasion being discovered sans apparel in Barbara's wardrobe. John learned a lot from Barbara, and not all of it in the bedroom. She may have been the king's former mistress, but she retained her significant influence as a major political figure at court until at least 1676. Barbara was, in many ways, remarkably like John's future wife, Sarah, in that she was strong-willed, hot-tempered, and manipulative. She certainly passed on her knowledge of how to manipulate the Royal Courts to the ever-attentive John. She also passed on a pension of £5,000, which would be worth well over half a million pounds in today's money. A pension which John, always canny with money, converted into an annuity worth over £50,000 a year, in today's money, and that is the start of John's immense wealth. But searing emotions aside, it was news from Europe that soon took John away from Barbara and set him off to war. In 1672, Louis XIV of France, in his perennial attempts to expand his empire, fixed his eyes northward towards the United Provinces, or Holland, as we call it today. The Catholic France of the absolutist Louis XIV, was in stark contrast to the Protestant Dutch state, whose appointed constitutional monarch and captain-general of their troops was William of Orange, the future William III. England was not allied to William at this time, but rather with France, due to the secret Treaty of Dover, signed in June 1670. This required that Charles would convert to Catholicism at some future date, and that he would assist in France's war of conquest against the Dutch. In exchange, Charles would secretly receive a yearly pension of £230,000 or well over £20 million in today's money as well as an extra sum when Charles informed the English people of his conversion. John saw action as a makeshift marine on board the Duke of York's flagship, the Prince, at the Battle of Southwold on the 28th of May 1672. While the Duke of York was brave and aggressive in his handling of the English fleet, he failed to defeat the Dutch. John, though, was promoted to captain as a reward for his service. Around this time, John appears to have earned the disapproval of Charles II, possibly for getting Barbara Castlemaine pregnant with a daughter, a daughter whom John never acknowledged as his own. And as a result, John was forbidden to attend court and was confined to his post at Great Yarmouth. However, John, probably due to the intervention of the Duke of York, was appointed to the Lord Admiral's regiment who was sent on foreign service and saw action at the siege of Maastricht. It was here that John learned the skills of siege warfare and began to feel that they were a slow and wasteful way to conduct a war. He once famously said that he would rather fight 10 battles than conduct one siege. The Earl of Oray wrote that, quote, we make war more like foxes than lions. John, though, was a lion on the 25th of June 1673 when he joined the Duke of Monmouth the eldest bastard son of Charles II, in the assault on the Maastricht fortifications. John planted the colours on the ramparts and at some point in the melee saved the life of the Duke of Monmouth, an action that obviously returned John to favour at court. Monmouth and Churchill would meet again on the battlefield in 1685, and this time it would end very badly for one of them. But for now, peace between France and Holland broke out in 1674. John was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel of the Duke of York's own regiment, and soon was in active service with the French again, but this time against the German states on France's eastern border. John now came under the wing of the most renowned soldier in the 17th century, Marshal Touraine. It was under this command that John learned how to handle an army with vigor, speed, and with an eye to the decisive battle. After six years of active service in 1678, John now became a full colonel, but without regimental responsibilities. Given his experience and being close to the English court, it was time to bridge that narrow gap between being a senior staff officer and a diplomat. But it was affairs of the heart, rather than affairs of state, that now took John's full attention. For he was now hopelessly in love with one of Mary of Medina's maids of honour, Sarah Jennings. Mary of Medina was the second wife of James, Duke of York, but while Mary is put in an interesting footnote, it is Sarah who emerges as one of the most interesting characters in Stuart history. She was beautiful, determined and the possessor of a flaming temper that would lead to much trouble in the future. There is much about Sarah that is difficult to like, but nothing can blunt the impact of this outspoken, uncontrollable and self-willed beauty. John was smitten. It was a love match for the ages. Their surviving love letters are of two people hopelessly in love both spiritually and physically. It was a love of tempestuous rows, breakups, makeups, parental disapproval, and eventually a long and loving marriage. Sarah's father had died, leaving behind a mass of debts, and Sarah's mother had thought that her daughter might have been her meal ticket. But John had little in the way of savings, no property, and only the income of his army pay, and that annuity, to offer. But John and Sarah married for love, not money, Those who accused John of overweening ambition and a love of money usually forget this part. John could easily have married one of the many eligible daughters of the rich nobility who were being lined up to marry this dashing, handsome royal favourite. Parental approval was only gained when Sarah's sister laid down the law to Sarah's mother. John, on the other hand, had to sign away any rights to his inheritance before he gained his father's approval. The young couple married in 1678 John was 28, Sarah just 18, and they moved into John's London apartments as they could not afford a larger property. John's new diplomatic role was to act as a liaison between the British and Dutch armies, a role in which he soon made the acquaintance of William of Orange, a relationship that would in time swing wildly from one extreme to another and back again. But for now it was a time of peace on the battlefields of Europe but not in the battle between Protestant and Catholic in trying to determine the future shape of the British Crown. Parliament was dominated by Protestants and in 1678 tried to exclude the Duke of York from the line of succession following the so-called Popish Plot to assassinate Charles and replace him with the Duke. From 1678 to 1683 the exclusion crisis dominated politics and was to play a large role in the career of John Churchill. John was by now indelibly linked with the Duke of York, and joined him when the Duke was officially exiled in 1679 to The Hague, and then to Brussels. From Brussels, John and Sarah accompanied the Duke of York to Scotland, when James was effectively declared viceroy in 1681. This was to get him as far away from London as possible. It was during their time in Scotland that the first signs were seen of a distancing between the Duke and Churchill. In private correspondence, Churchill admitted he was concerned with the darker side of the Duke's character, his use of judicial torture, his threat to raise an army of Catholic Scots and Irish, and to make a full alliance with the French. These showed those deficits of character that would eventually lead to the fall of the Duke of York, a lack of flexibility, a lack of good judgment, and a failure to take advice. These traits were also in evidence when the Duke of York and John were allowed to return to England in May 1682. They returned on the Gloucester, which founded off the Norfolk coast. The Duke was repeatedly asked to evacuate, but he refused, which, while brave, was also foolhardy, as no one else was prepared to leave the ship before he did. To compound this error, the Duke, once persuaded to leave the ship, then grabbed the longboat and insisted on taking off his favourites, such as John Churchill before allowing other boats to rescue the stricken passengers and crew. The result was that many more drowned than should have done. And although the official report into the incident placed the responsibility firmly on the ship's captain, the rumor mill soon made it clear that it was the responsibility of the Duke of York. But for now, John Churchill was safely home and was awarded a Scottish baronetcy for his work in Scotland. John and Sarah now settled in Holywell House near St Albans. John was firmly ensconced within the Royal Court and was a regular tennis partner of Charles II. It was while playing tennis that John first met Sidney Godolphin, who would become John's principal political ally in the years ahead, when Godolphin was to become the Lord Treasurer, the de facto Prime Minister. Godolphin always worked with both the Whigs and the Tories, but always tried to thread a route that was not beholden to any one political party. For now though, John was appointed Colonel of the King's own Regiment of Dragoons. An appointment of an infantryman to a cavalry regiment certainly raised a few eyebrows, as well as a few extra pounds for the ever-increasingly wealthy Churchill family. John Churchill is often painted by contemporaries and indeed some historians as someone who was drunk on power and avaricious beyond compare. But the 1680s saw John playing the family man at Holywell House. He spent time and money on rebuilding the main house while also being a father to seven children, all born within the 1680s, five of whom survived infancy. Rather than John being a man in a hurry, it was now Sarah's turn to shine. Sarah and the future Queen Anne had first met when Sarah was 10 and Anne just six. One can only imagine how the young Anne, daughter of James, Duke of York, looked up to Sarah. A hero worship that certainly turned to at least an innocent crush as they grew up. Did Anne and Sarah in fact have something more than just an extremely close friendship as they entered adulthood? Were they in fact in a lesbian relationship as some have now come to believe? I can find no extant source that can answer that question. There is certainly more than a hint of romance in their breathless correspondence where they address each other by pseudonyms. Sarah was Mrs Freeman and Anne was Mrs Morley. But I am far from certainly ever spilled over from an extremely close friendship to anything more physical. In 1683, Anne married Prince George of Denmark, a suitably Protestant prince, and in an almost annual procession she had at least 17 pregnancies. 13 of them miscarried, and the four who survived childbirth all died young. Anne also lost her husband in 1708. How Anne functioned with the hammer blow of losing all her children and husband is unclear to me, but I think it certainly explains why Sarah played such a key role as she grew up. And has her closest confidant. John and Sarah now grew closer to Anne and George <coughs> even as they pulled away from the Duke of York and Mary of Medina. But this settled world was rocked in 1685 when Charles II died suddenly. On his deathbed, Charles renounced his Protestantism and returned to his true faith. He died a Catholic. James, Duke of York, now became James II. John Churchill still retained his favour as he was made Baron Churchill of Sandridge and entered the House of Lords. Religion again began to divide the country and the royal family. James tried hard to persuade Anne to convert to Catholicism while Sarah fought hard to prevent it happening. But fighting of a far more serious bent soon broke out with Monmouth's rebellion. The Duke of Monmouth, the eldest son of Charles II and the man who John Churchill saved at the Battle of Maastricht now attempted to take the throne, he felt rightly belonged to him. It was an enterprise doomed to failure. Monmouth never had more than 7,000 men at his disposal and his anticipated popular uprising never materialized. In fact, most of the country seemed to have rallied behind James II. Monmouth landed at Lyme Bay on the 11th of June 1685 and by the 13th, that news had reached London. James II dispatched John Churchill as his personal envoy and placed him in charge of the advance Guard of the British Army. Churchill performed these duties well. He had only a small force, but hung terrier-like to the flanks and rear of Monmouth's army. By keeping it on the move, Churchill reduced Monmouth's ability to recruit and train his fledgling army. Once the full Royal Army was in the field, Churchill though was superseded by a superior officer, the French Huguenot Louis de Duras, Earl of Feversham. Feversham was a close confidant of James II and shared some of his less attractive traits. Some claim that Churchill was upset at being replaced, but overall he seems to have acted as a faithful lieutenant to Feversham, only getting frustrated when his role in commanding the advance guard and his exemplary handling of the melee at Norton St. Phillips I was overlooked by Feversham in report to James II. Monmouth's rebellion stalled in the West Country and it now reached its climax. Monmouth's original plan. Had been to make straight for London, swept along on a tide of popular support, but that never happened. So plan B was to brace himself in the south west, build up his army while his agents tried to engender support and then march to London. However Monmouth couldn't take Bath, Bristol or even Frome. Monmouth, aware that he was hemorrhaging troops from his demoralised army, decided that only a bold gambit that at one stroke might defeat the King's troop would see him victorious. That plan his army to appear to have settled in their camp at Bridgewater for the night, and then launch a night attack on the sleeping Royal Army near Western Zoyland. The battlefield, even today, is a flat, slab, dreary piece of lowland pierced by waterways and a couple of roads. Early in the morning of the 6th of July, 1685, all looked well for Monmouth as the rebel troops approached the Royalist campsite, until, In the misty moonlight, a single shot rang out. This alerted the Royal Army's pickets, and soon the camp was ready for action. It was Churchill's infantry that won the day. They poured volleys into Monmouth's cavalry, who broke and galloped away, followed by two regiments of Monmouth's foot. The remaining battalions of Monmouth's infantry gallantly came on, but Churchill personally directed the fire of his infantry, and victory was assured even before Feversham had appeared on the battleground. The Royal Army had lost just 30 men killed and 206 wounded, while at least 1,400 rebels perished, about a quarter of the rebel army. It was the end of Monmouth's rebellion. All that was left was for James II's bloody retribution, managed by Feversham and hanging Judge Jeffreys at the bloody assizes. About 300 rebels were executed, and 900 transported to the West Indies. As for Monmouth, he was brutally executed, Five swings of the axe failed, and the executioner had to use a knife to sever the head that had so wanted to wear the crown. Churchill came out of the campaign with huge credit. He had handled the advance guard well, always pushing on Monmouth's flank and rear, and at Sedgemoor, his judicious handling of the infantry had won the battle. Historian John Tinsey has written, and I quote, "Sedgemoor may not have been John Churchill's most spectacular victory, but it must be considered his first. Churchill also gained financially, as he was awarded the estate of one of the richer rebels, another bump in his fortune. More money came his way as Churchill was promoted to Major General and given the colonelcy of the Third Ship of Lifeguards. It also, though, seems to have given him the confidence to become his own man, and not just James' loyal servant, as evidenced when John acquitted Lord Delamere of Treason against the wishes of the king. For James II, the victory over Monmouth was the apogee of his reign. But just three years later, Churchill turned on his royal master and James II had to flee the country. So why did James survive 1685 but fall in 1688? Three things. Firstly, in 1685, people believed that James II would find an accommodation with the Protestants. Secondly, the next in line to the throne was a Protestant. And thirdly, because of the first two, Churchill and the army remained loyal. All this, though, would have been changed by 1688. For Churchill, it was James's Catholicism that was the defining issue that would see him betray the man to whom he owed everything. Churchill had told the French Protestant, Henri de Masseux early in 1685, that, and I quote, "'If the King should attempt to change our religion, "'I will instantly quit his service.'" James's promotions of Catholics in royal institutions aroused suspicion and sedition in his mainly Protestant subjects. Even his daughters, Mary and Anne, expressed alarm at the King's fanatical zeal for the Roman Catholic religion. And when Mary of Medina gave birth to a son, James Francis Edward Stuart, known to history as the Old Pretender, it opened the prospect of a line of Catholic monarchs. Some in the King's service converted to Catholicism and were accused of betraying their Protestant upbringing to gain favour at court. Churchill though, remained true to his conscience, telling the King, and I quote, "'I have been bred a Protestant, "'and I intend to live and die in that communion.'" Principled as this sound, was John also motivated by self-interest? Did he intend, unlike his unfortunate father before him, not to be on the losing side of any civil war, and therefore risk losing his position, and especially his wealth. It is difficult this far removed to be 100% certain of his true motivation. Personally, I believe John Churchill was motivated less by ambition on this occasion and more by his own moral compass. All we do know is that John Churchill began to turn away from James, and he declared his intention through William of Orange's principal English contact in The Hague. Quote, if you think there is anything else that I ought to do, you have but to command me. William landed at Brixham on the 5th of November, 1688. From there, he moved his army to Exeter. Promoted to Lieutenant General, Churchill was still at the King's side and appeared loyal, but it soon became clear that his loyalty had switched and Feversham called for his arrest. James hesitated, not believing that his close confidant and friend and the person who owned him everything would betray him. Soon, it was too late to act. After a meeting of the Council of War at Salisbury, on the morning of the 24th of November, Churchill, accompanied by some 400 officers and men, slipped from the royal camp, leaving behind him a letter of self-justification. And I quote it at length. I hope the great advantage I enjoy under your majesty, which I own I would never expect in any other change of government, may reasonably convince your majesty and the world that I'm actuated by a higher principle. When the king saw that he could not keep even Churchill, he despaired. James II, who in the words of the Archbishop of Reims had given up three kingdoms for a mass, fled to France, taking with him his son and heir, and soon settled in saint germain de Lay in Paris and established the exiled Jacobite court. While Marlborough had written in his farewell letter to James that he had not expected to gain advantage in a change of government, this did not turn out as expected. As part of the coronation honours, Churchill was created Earl of Marlborough, on the 9th of April 1689. He also became a member of the Privy Council and a gentleman of the King's bedchamber. His elevation led to rumours that Marlborough had betrayed James for personal gain. William became worried that if he had done it once, he might do it again. Some historians attribute patriotic, religious and moral motives to his actions, but others find it difficult to absolve Marlborough of ruthlessness, ingratitude, intrigue and treachery against James, to whom he owed everything in his life and career. In my view, given his statements in the preceding three years, Marlborough broke with James for reasons of conscience rather than disloyalty. Marlborough's first act was to assist in the remodelling of the army. This gave the Earl the opportunity to build a new Protestant officer corps that would prove beneficial over the next two decades. His task was urgent. For less than six months after James's departure, England joined the war against France as part of a powerful coalition aimed at curtailing the ambitions of Louis XIV. Marlborough took charge of the English troops sent to the Low Countries in the spring of 1689, yet throughout the Nine Years' War, between 1689 and 97, he saw only three years' service in the field. So why is that? Because, at the English court, Marlborough's popularity had waned. William and Mary distrusted Lord and Lady Marlborough's influence over Princess Anne, whose claim to the throne was far stronger than William's. Sarah Churchill in particular had supported Anne in a series of disputes against her sister, and this infuriated Mary. But this clash of tempers was overshadowed when James landed in Ireland to regain his throne. William left for Ireland in June 1690, leaving Marlborough as commander of all troops and militia in England and appointed to the Council of Nine to advise Mary. But Mary made scant effort to disguise her distaste of Marlborough. She wrote to William that, I can neither trust nor esteem him. William III's victory at the Battle of the Boyne on the 1st of July 1690 forced James to abandon his army and to flee back to France. In August, Marlborough left for his first ever independent command, a combined land and sea operation upon the ports of Cork and Kinsale. It was a bold project designed to disrupt Jacobite supply routes and one which Marlborough conceived and executed with outstanding success. Cork fell on the 27th of September and Kinsale followed in mid-October. Although the campaign did not end the war in Ireland as planned, it taught Marlborough the significance of the minutiae of logistics and the importance of cooperation and tact when working alongside other senior commanders. It would, however, be more than ten years before he once again took charge in the field. Because while William III recognised Marlborough's qualities as a soldier, he distrusted him. He refused him the order of the garter and did not appoint him Master General of the Ordnance. Marlborough did not conceal his bitter disappointment. And using his influence in Parliament and the army, Marlborough aroused dissatisfaction concerning William's preference for foreign rather than English commanders. William in turn began to speak openly of his distrust of Marlborough. Allegedly, the king remarked that he had, quote, been treated so infamously by Marlborough that had he not been king, he would have felt it necessary to challenge him to a duel. Marlborough had been in contact with the exiled James II in Saint-Germain, anxious to obtain the erstwhile king's forgiveness for deserting him in 1688. A pardon essential in the likely event of a Jacobite restoration, Marlborough did not wish for a Jacobite restoration, but William was conscious of his military and political qualities and the danger that the Earl posed. Thomas Macaulay has written that William was not prone to fear, but if there was anyone on earth that he did fear, it was Marlborough. In January 1692, Queen Mary, angered by the Marlborough's intrigues, ordered Anne to dismiss Sarah from her household. Anne refused. The King then ordered Marlborough to dispose of all his posts and offices and dismissed him from court. Marlborough's associates were outraged. Godolphin threatened to retire from government, and Admiral Russell, first sea lord of the Navy, accused the King of ingratitude to the man who had set the crown upon his head. But the nadir of Marlborough's fortunes had not yet been reached. The spring of 1692 brought new accusations of Jacobite treachery. Acting on the testimony of one Robert Young, the Queen arrested all the signatories to a letter supporting the restoration of James and the seizure of William. Marlborough was allegedly one of those signatories and was sent to the Tower of London, where he languished for five long weeks. His anguish compounded by the news of the death of his youngest son. Robert Young's letters, though, were eventually discredited as baseless forgeries and Marlborough was released, but he didn't learn his lesson and still continued his correspondence with James leading to the celebrated incident of the Camry Bay letter of 1694. For several months, the Allies had been planning an attack on Brest in the Bay of Biscay. At some point, the French had received intelligence alerting them to the imminent assault, enabling Marshal Vauban to strengthen his defences and reinforce the garrison. Inevitably, the attack on the 18th of June 1694 ended in disaster. Despite lacking evidence, Marlborough's detractees claimed it was he who had alerted the enemy in a letter sent to James on the 3rd of May. Some historians have concluded that Marlborough may well have written this letter but only when he knew that it would be received too late for its information to be of any practical use. The plan of the attack on Brest was not some well-kept government secret and in fact the French had already begun to strengthen their defences as early as April a full month before the letter could have been written. To many, the evidence linking Marlborough with the Camaray Bay letter is very slender, but others do maintain that it is not possible to make a definitive ruling. If he did write it, then if nothing else, it showed very poor judgment. However, Queen Mary's death on the 28th of December 1694 eventually led to a formal, if cool, reconciliation between William III and Princess Anne, who was now heir to the throne. Although the Marlboroughs were allowed to return to court, the Earl received no offer of military employment. In 1696, Marlborough was again implicated in a plot with James II, this time instigated by the Jacobite militant John Fenwick. The accusations were later dismissed as a fabrication and Fenwick executed, but it was not until 1698 that William and Marlborough's relationship was mended. William offered Marlborough the post of Governor to the Duke of Gloucester, Anne's eldest son. Marlborough was also restored to the Privy Council, together with all his military ranks. When William left for Holland in July, Marlborough was one of the Lord Justices left ruling the country, but striving to reconcile his close Tory connections with that of the dutiful royal servant was difficult, leaving Marlborough to complain, that the King's coldness to me still continues. But soon all will change. In the late 17th century, the most important theme in European politics was a rivalry between the houses of Habsburg and Bourbon as they jostled to see who would dominate Europe. Would it be Austria or France? But it was Spain that would provide the excuse for a major war when in 1700 the childless Charles II of Spain died. While Spain was no longer the dominant power it had been, it was still a geographic superpower with possessions in Europe and the Americas. The possession of the Spanish throne would therefore change the balance of power in Europe in favour of either France or Austria. Early attempts to partition the Spanish Empire between France and Austria had failed, so when Charles II of Spain died in November 1700, he left his throne to the grandson of his half-sister, who just happened to be the wife of Louis XIV. Louis's grandson therefore became Philip V of Spain. However. This was supposed to be on the condition that Philip renounced his claim to the French throne, but Louis XIV ignored that as he eyed French domination in Europe. To counter this threat, William III, his health failing, appointed Marlborough Ambassador Extraordinary and Commander of English Forces. In September 1701, Marlborough attended the Grand Alliance Treaty Conference at The Hague between Britain, the Dutch Republics, and the Holy Roman Empire. As part of the treaty, Archduke Charles of Austria was nominated as King of Spain instead of Philip. Eventually this would become the Grand Alliance's main war aim and by stubbornly sticking to it would prolong that war by several years. William III died on the 8th of March 1702 from injuries sustained in a riding accident and was succeeded by Anne. His death robbed the Alliance of its most obvious leader although Marlborough's position was strengthened by his close relationship with the new Queen. Queen Anne now appointed Marlborough Master General of the Ordnance, a Knight of the Garter, and Captain General of her armies at home and abroad. Lady Marlborough was made groom of the stool, mistress of the robes, and keeper of the privy purse, giving the Marlborough's unrivalled influence at court, and a combined annual income of £6.5 million in today's money. In May 1702, Queen Anne formally declared war on France. Marlborough was given command of the Alliance troops, despite his relative inexperience of commanding such a large force. His command, though, had its limitations. As commander of Anglo-Dutch forces, he only had the power to give orders to Dutch generals when their troops were in action with his own. At all other times, he had to rely on his power of persuasion to gain the consent of the accompanying political representatives of the Dutch state. Understandably, the Dutch were always more concerned by the possibility of an invasion from France rather than going on the offensive. Nevertheless, the campaign in the Low Countries went well for Marlborough. After outmanoeuvring Marshal Buffleur, he captured several cities including Venlo and Liège, for which a grateful queen gave John the title for which he is known, the first. Duke of Marlborough. 1703 was to be a year of family celebrations and grief for the Marlboroughs. Her two older daughters were already married, Henrietta to Sidney Godolphin's son and Anne to Charles Spencer, Earl of Sunderland. Now was the turn of the younger children. Elizabeth married the Earl of Bridgewater, while Mary became engaged to the future Duke of Montague but Marlborough's hopes of founding a great dynasty rested on his sole surviving son, John, Marcus of Blandford. Sadly, whilst doing at Cambridge, the 17-year-old was stricken with smallpox. His parents rushed to his side, but on the 20th of February 1703, the boy died. Grief-stricken, the Duke returned to The Hague in March 1703. While Marlborough was able to take Bonn, Hoy and Limburg, the Anglo-Dutch plan to secure Antwerp and opened the route into Flanders and Brabant failed as the French army stood stubbornly on the defensive. Domestically, the Duke also encountered problems. The moderate Tory ministry of Marlborough, Godolphin and the new Speaker of the House of Commons, Robert Harley, were hampered by their Tory colleagues. These Tory colleagues favoured the full employment of the Royal Navy in pursuit of trade advantages and colonial expansion overseas. To the Tories, an action at sea was preferable to one ashore. In contrast, the Whigs enthusiastically supporting Marlborough's continental strategy of thrusting the army into the heart of France, which was, after all, the only sure way to defeat the French. But the Duke was by now a general of international repute, and the limited success of 1703 was soon eclipsed by the 1704 Blenheim campaign. Pressed by the French and the Bavarians, In 1704, Austria faced the real possibility of being forced out of the war. Concerns over the safety of Vienna and the situation in southern Germany convinced Marlborough on the need to send aid to the Danube. But the scheme of seizing the initiative from the enemy was extremely bold. The Duke resolved to mislead the Dutch, for they would never willingly permit any major weakening of his troops in the Netherlands. Marlborough therefore moved his troops to the Moselle, a plan approved of by the Hague. But once there, he slipped the Dutch leash and marched south to link up with the Austrian forces in southern Germany. A combination of strategic deception and brilliant administration enabled Marlborough to achieve his purpose. Leaving Flanders, the Duke crossed the River Rhine. It had now being clear that Marlborough had no plans to cross the Meuse and invade Alsace, the French Marshal Villeroi sent for reinforcements. Marlborough, however, continued his march south, heading deeper into Bavaria. After marching 250 miles from the Low Countries in just 44 days, the Allies fought their first major encounter. On the 2nd of July 1704, Marshall and, the, and Prince Louis of Baden successfully stormed the Schellenberg Heights at Donavuth. But it is now that a dark stain appears on Marlborough's reputation. In order to bring the French, and especially the elector of Bavaria to the point of battle, he ordered his troops to ravage Bavaria. Villages were burnt and crops destroyed. Undoubtedly today it will be classed as a war crime, but even then many considered it beyond the pale. However, it worked, and the French and Bavarian army marched to encounter the allied army. So the main event followed on the 13th of August, when Marlborough, assisted by that great imperial commander Prince Eugene of Savoy, delivered a crushing defeat of the French at the Battle of Blenheim. Eugene and Marlborough delivered a masterclass in pinning an opponent's flank, then attacking through the center. The whole campaign has been described as the greatest example of marching and fighting in military history. It had been a model of planning, logistics, tactical and operational skill. The successful outcome of which had altered the course of the war. Bavaria was knocked out of the war, and Louis XIV's hope of an early victory were destroyed. Marlborough now stood as the foremost soldier of the age. Even the Tories, who had declared that should he fail, they would, and I quote, break him up like hounds on a hare," could not entirely restrain their patriotic admiration. The Queen lavished upon her favorite, the Royal Manor of Woodstock, and the promise of a palace to commemorate his great victory at Blenheim. It was to be the high watermark in the Marlborough's relationship with Anne. The Duke and Duchess may have risen to greatness because of their intimacy with Anne, but the Duchess's relentless campaign in favour of the Whigs had begun to isolate her from the Queen. For her part, Anne had grown tired of Sarah's tactless hectoring and haughty manner, which was destroying their friendship. After the success of 1704, the campaign of 1705 brought little reason for satisfaction, but personally, it brought Marlborough more titles and more money. He was now made a prince of the Holy Roman Empire, and his new estate earned him an extra half a million pounds in today's money, that's per year. The seventeen oh five planned invasion of France was frustrated by disunity within the alliance, forcing the Duke to withdraw back towards the Low Countries. Although in July Marlborough penetrated the lines of Brabant, an arc of defensive fieldworks stretching seventy miles from Antwerp to Nemours, Allied political indecision prevented the Duke from pressing his advantage. The French and the Tories now believed that Blenheim had been a one-off and that Marlborough was a general not to be feared. The early months of 1706 also proved frustrating for the Duke as Louis XIV's generals gained early successes in other theatres. These setbacks thwarted Marlborough's original plans but he soon adjusted his scheme and marched into enemy territory. Louis XIV, equally determined to fight and avenge Blenheim, goaded his commander, Marshal Villois, to seek out Marlborough. The subsequent Battle of Ramillies, fought on the 23rd of May was Marlborough's most successful action and one in which he himself led the decisive charge. Again, Marlborough's skillful use of ground, his tactical awareness and personal bravery created an overload in the southern sector of the battlefield. For the loss of fewer than 3,000 dead and wounded, his victory had cost the enemy some 20,000 casualties, inflicting in the words of Marshal Villers, Quote, the most shameful, humiliating, and disastrous of routes. The campaign was an unsurpassed operational triumph for the English general. Town after town subsequently fell to the Allies as they cleared the Spanish Netherlands of the French. While Marlborough fought, domestic political infighting created a reversal of fortune in Whitehall. As a price for supporting the government in the next parliamentary session, the Whigs demanded the appointment of the Earl of Sunderland, Marlborough's son-in-law to the post of Secretary of State. The Queen loathed Sunderland and bitterly opposed the move. But with Sarah's tactless, unsubtle backing, Godolphin pressed the Queen. In despair, Anne relented. But the special relationship between Godolphin, Sarah and the Queen had taken a severe blow and she began to turn increasingly to a new favourite, Sarah's cousin, Abigail Masham. It had been Sarah who had taken Abigail in and procured her a role at court, only to find herself supplanted in Anne's affections. Anne became ever more reliant on Abigail and the speaker, Robert Harley, because he had separated himself from the Godolphin Marlborough group and had set himself up as an alternative source of advice to an ever sympathetic queen. Following his victory at Ramillies, Marlborough returned to England and the acclamation of Parliament. However, the Allied successes of 1706 were followed in 1707 with a French resurgence across all fronts of the war and a return to political squabbling and indecision within the Grand Alliance. Marlborough, though, now proved he had other skills. The French had hoped to entice Charles XII, King of Sweden, to attack the Holy Roman Empire. But in a visit to Sweden, Marlborough proclaimed Charles and prevented his interference in the War of the Spanish Succession. To achieve this, Marlborough reputedly bribed one of the Swedish King's senior advisers, Carl Piper. To push for an invasion of Russia to distract from events in Western Europe. Karl Piper denied it that he'd had a bribe but did admit that the Duke provided his wife with a very expensive pair of diamond earrings. A bribe, a gift or just brilliant diplomacy remains the question. But aside from derailing Louis XIV's plan, 1707 saw major setbacks for the Allied cause both in Spain and in southern Germany. To make it worse, Marlborough's main goal for the campaign of taking too long had only resulted in Prince Eugene's retreat, and so ended any lingering hopes of a war-winning blow that year. Domestically, Marlborough returned to a political storm as the Ministry's critics turned to attack the overall conduct of the war. Marlborough and Godolphin had agreed to explore a more moderate scheme with Speaker Harley and to reconstruct the government, but they were incensed when Harley criticised the management of the war directly to the Queen and Harley's associate, Henry St. John, the Secretary of War, then attacked Marlborough in the Parliament. Marlborough and Godolphin threatened the Queen with resignation unless she dismissed Harley, but Anne fought stubbornly to keep her new favourite minister. However, other senior ministers backed Marlborough, and so Harley and St. John resigned before they were sacked. They were then replaced by the Whigs. The struggle had given Marlborough a final lease of power, but it was a Whig victory and he had to a large extent lost his hold on the Queen. Militarily, 1708 continued where 1707 had finished with a loss of territory to the French. Marlborough was despondent about the situation but his optimism received a boost with the arrival of his close ally, Prince Eugene. Marlborough now set about to regain the strategic initiative. After a forced march, the Allies crossed the Scheldt at Oudenard just as the French army was crossing further north to besiege the city. Marlborough moved decisively to engage them. His victory at the Battle of Oudenard on the 11th of July 1708 totally demoralised the French army in Flanders. Marlborough again demonstrated his eye for ground, his sense of timing and his keen knowledge of the enemy. The success restored the strategic initiative to the Allies. Marlborough now opted to besiege Lille, the strongest fortress in Europe. While the Duke commanded the covering force, Eugene oversaw the siege of the town, which surrendered on the 22nd of October. The campaign of 1708 had been a remarkable success, requiring superior logistical skill and organization. Describing Marlborough's handling of the campaign, Eugene wrote, he who has not seen this has seen nothing. While Marlborough achieved honors on the battlefield, at home, politically, the Whigs drove the remaining Tories from the cabinet. Marlborough and Godolphin, now distanced from the Queen, would henceforth have to conform to the decisions of a Whig ministry, while the Tories, sullen and vengeful, looked forward to their former leader's downfall. Sounds familiar. Mm. To compound his troubles, the Duchess spurred on by a hatred of Harley and Abigail Masham, had finally driven the Queen to distraction and wrecked what was left of their friendship. Sarah was retained in court, only out of the necessity to keep her victorious husband at the head of the army. France, though, was on the brink of collapse. However, Allied demands at the peace talks in The Hague in April 1709 were rejected out of hand by the French. The Grand Alliance failed to secure a favourable peace because they adhered to the uncompromising slogan of no peace without Spain, meaning that war would continue until Philip relinquished the throne. All the while, Harley rallied the moderates to his side, ready to play an ambitious and powerful part and with the aid of Abigail Masham, retained the ear of Queen Anne. Marlborough returned to campaigning in the Low Countries in June 1709. After outwitting Marshal Villers to take the town of Tournay in September, he turned his attention upon Mons, determined to maintain the ceaseless pressure on the French. With direct orders from an increasingly desperate Louis XIV to save the city, Villers advanced on the tiny village of Malplaquet on the 9th of September 1709 and entrenched his position. Two days later, the opposing forces clashed in the bloodiest battle of the war. On the Allied left flank, the Prince of Orange led his Dutch infantry in desperate charges, only to have it cut to pieces. On the right flank, Eugene attacked and suffered the same fate. Nevertheless, this sustained pressure forced Villers to weaken his centre, enabling Marlborough to break through and to take the victory. Yet the cost was unspeakably high. The Allied casualty figures were approximately double that of the enemy. The Allies lost 22,000 men, the French just 11. The Duke proceeded to take Mons, but on his return to England, his enemies used the Malplaquet casualty figures to sully his reputation. Harley, now master of the Tory party, persuaded his colleagues that the pro-war Whigs and by association Marlborough and Godolphin were bent on leading the country to ruin. The Allies had expected that a victory in a major set-piece battle in 1709 would compel Louis XIV to accept peace terms on Allied terms. But that strategy had lost its validity after the bloodbath of Mar In 1710, Villers only had to avoid defeat for a compromising peace settlement to become inevitable. In March 1710, fresh peace talks reopened. But again, Louis XIV would not concede to demands to force his grandson, Philip V, from the throne of Spain. Publicly, Marlborough towed the government line, but he had real doubts that the French would ever agree to Philip losing the throne. The Duke was only an observer at these peace talks, but the failed negotiation gave credence to his detractors that he was deliberately prolonging the war. It was with reluctance that he returned to campaigning in the spring, capturing Douai, Bethune, Saint-Venon and ayrsou Nevertheless, support for the pro-war policy of the Whigs had ebbed away. Harley, now struck and the Queen dismissed the Ministry of Godolphin. The result of the general election in October was a Tory landslide and a victory for the peace policy. Marlborough, though, remained at the head of the army and the Whigs, Godolphin, and the leaders of the Grand Alliance implored him to stand by the common cause. The new Tory ministers also required him to stay, to maintain the pressure on the French until they had made their own secret arrangements for the peace. The Duke returned to England in November 1710, His relationship with Anne had suffered further setbacks in recent months. For now, though, the central issue was a Duchess, whose growing resentment of Harley and Abigail had finally persuaded the Queen to be rid of her. Marlborough visited Anne on the 17th of January, 1711, in a last gasp effort to save his wife's position. But Anne was not to be swayed. Sarah gave up the symbol of her office, her gold key, warning, I will talk of no other business till I have the key. Sarah had no choice but to relinquish her position. Notwithstanding all this turmoil and his own declining health, Marlborough returned to The Hague in late February 1711 to prepare for what was to be his last and one of his greatest campaigns. Once again, Marlborough and Villers faced each other, this time along the 90 mile stretch of defensive line between Montreuil to Merberge, known as the lines of Neplus Ultra. Expecting another onslaught on the scale of Malplaquet, the Allied generals thought that their commander was leading them to an appalling slaughter. But by an exercise of great deception and a night march covering nearly 40 miles in just 18 hours, the Allies penetrated these allegedly impregnable lines at Harleur without losing a single man. Marble was now in a position to besiege the fortress of Bouchain. Villers, deceived and outmanoeuvred, was helpless to intervene, compelling the fortress's unconditional surrender on the 12th of September. I quote the great military historian, David Chandler, the pure military artistry with which he repeatedly deceived villas during the first part of the campaign has few equals in the annals of military history. For Marlborough, though, time had run out. His strategic gains in 1711 made it virtually certain that the Allies would march on Paris the following year, as only the fortress of Cambrai now stood in their way. But Harley had no intention of letting the war progress that far. He had no intention of risking the favourable terms secured from the secret Anglo-French talks. Marlborough had long had doubts about the Whig policy of no peace without Spain, but he was reluctant to abandon his allies, especially the Elector of Hanover, the future George I, because he had publicly sided with the Whigs in opposing the peace proposals. Marlborough therefore stood on principle in favour of staying loyal to the Allies. Nevertheless, Anne remained resolute and on the 7th of December 1711, was able to announce, with a sneer towards Marlborough thrown in, that, and I quote, notwithstanding those who delight in the arts of war, both time and place are appointed for the opening of the Treaty of a General Peace. To prevent the renewal of war in the spring, it was considered essential to replace Marlborough, with a general more in touch with the Queen's ministers, and less in touch with their allies. To do this, Harley, now the Earl of Oxford, and St. John, now Viscount Bolingbroke, first needed to bring trumped-up charges of corruption against the Duke. This accusation had already been aired in the anti wig anti-war pamphlet hearing of their stooge Jonathan Swift, in his Conduct of the Allies, published in 1711. Two main charges were brought against Marlborough: first, an assertion that over nine years he had illegally received more than 6.6 million pounds in today's money. ...from the bread and transport contractors in the Netherlands. Secondly, that he had pocketed 2.5%... ...from the pay of the foreign troops under English control. Marlborough, though, was totally innocent of any wrongdoing. The first allegation was a perk... ...that all English generals benefited from on campaign. And for the second, he had a warrant signed by the Queen in 1702... authorizing him to make such deductions... ...in lieu of Secret Service money. On the 29th of December 1711... Before the charges had even been examined, Anne sent her letter of dismissal. I quote it at length, I am sorry for your own sake the reasons are become so public, which make it necessary for me to let you know you have rendered it impracticable for you to continue yet longer in my service. Interestingly, when the new Captain General, the Duke of Ormond, left London for the Hague to take command of the British forces, He went with exactly the same allowances that had been voted criminal in the Duke of Marlborough. The Allies were stunned by Marlborough's dismissal. Harley and St. John had no intention of letting Britain's new captain general undertake any action and issued Ormond his infamous restraining order, forbidding him to use British troops in action against the French. Marlborough, attacked by his enemies and the government press, was hounded out of the country. He had little choice with his fortune in peril Lenham Palace still unfinished, and with England split between Hanoverian and Jacobite factions. Marlborough also now lost his great friend, Sidney Godolphin. He died in October. A few weeks after attending Godolphin's funeral, Marlborough went into voluntary exile to the continent on the 1st of December. Marlborough was welcomed by the people and courts in Europe, where he was respected as both a great general and as a prince of the Holy Roman Empire. Sarah joined him in February 1713 and was delighted when on reaching Frankfurt in the middle of May to see that the troops under Prince Eugene's command paid Marlborough, and I quote, all the respects as if he had been at his old post. Marlborough also maintained correspondence with the Jacobite court. This was even after James had died in 1701. But this insurance against the Jacobite restoration stirred Hanoverian suspicions. And prevented Marlborough from holding the highest place in the councils of the future George I. France, Great Britain, and the Dutch Republic signed the Treaty of Utrecht on the 11th of April 1713, so ended the War of the Spanish Succession, with Philip still on the throne of Spain. Britain gained Gibraltar, territory in North America and the Mediterranean. More importantly, France also recognised the Protestant succession in Britain. The treaty marked Britain's emergence as a great power, but at the cost of its integrity in many capitals. Domestically, the country remained divided between Whig and Tory, Jacobite and Hanoverian. By now, Harley and St John, absorbed entirely by their own mutual enmity and political infighting, had wrecked the Tory administration. Marlborough had been kept well informed of events while in exile, and had remained a powerful figure in the background on the political scene and in March 1714, an agreement was reached to reinstate the Duke in all his former offices and to be declared innocent of all wrongdoings. As Queen Anne's health deteriorated, she now turned to Bolingbroke and Marlborough to assume the reins of government and to ensure a smooth succession. On the 1st of August, Queen Anne died, the Privy Council immediately proclaimed the Elector of Hanover, King George I of Great Britain. Marlborough, although he had remained close to the Jacobite cause, had always remained close to the Anavarian court as well, was determined to ensure a bloodless Protestant succession upon Anne's death. The Duke slowly returned to favor of the House of Hanover, and this enabled him to preside over the defeat of the 1715 Jacobite Rising, but this time from London, as his health was failing. On the 28th of May, 1716, the Duke suffered a stroke at Holywell House. This was followed by another, more severe stroke in the November. The Duke recovered slowly and while his speech remained impaired, his mind remained clear, and he recovered enough to enable him to ride out to watch the builders at work at Blenheim and to attend the House of Lords. In 1719, the Duke and Duchess were finally able to move into the east wing of the still-unfinished Blenheim Palace. In June 1722, he suffered another stroke. Finally, at 4 a.m. on the 16th of June 1722, In the presence of his wife and two surviving daughters, the first Duke of Marlborough died. He was 72. He was buried in the vault at the east end of Henry VII's chapel in Westminster Abbey. But when Sarah died in 1744, Marlborough was moved to be by her side, lying in the vault beneath the chapel at Blenheim, together forever. Marlborough had many faults. He was ruthlessly ambitious, Relentless in the pursuit of wealth, power and social advancement, earning him a reputation for avarice and miserliness. But these traits have been exaggerated for the purposes of party faction by both the Tories and the Whigs. As a child he witnessed life in genteel poverty and never wanted that for his family. It is very safe to say he was tight with money and took every opportunity to get more if he could. I believe that his net worth at the time of his death was probably north of about £100 million in today's money, and his annual income was probably close to £10 million today, which is about what a second-rate championship footballer would get. So you have to put it in perspective. But do not forget, he married for love when he could have easily had his choice of a wealthy heiress. Instead, he married the love of his life, Sarah whose background was anything but that of the potential wife of a supposedly grasping and power-hungry man. It is also true that Marlborough, like nearly all statesmen of his day, was engaged in founding a dynasty and amassing estates, all at the public expense. Marlborough only differed, in my view, in that he gave the public much more value for their money than anyone else. But there are five more serious accusations that his detractors made at the time, But has his name been blackened beyond what the facts can confirm? I think this first one is easily dealt with. As I mentioned, one of the perks of the senior officers in the armies of the Stuarts was to obtain funds from various suppliers whilst on campaign. This was not considered as doing anything wrong. As for misappropriating government funds, Marlborough had written permission from the Queen herself to use certain funds as a means of obtaining the intelligence. And as if to improve their claims are false, the Tories then gave Marble's replacement these exact same benefits. In 1688, Marble was the first senior officer to desert James II. He did not wait to see how others would act. He followed his conscience as he said he would from as early as 1685. And he did the same again in 1711, when he stood with the Grand Alliance against the wishes of the Tories. Regarding the Camaray Bay affair, where it is claimed he leaked British invasion of In my view, it's certainly a case of not proven, rather than not guilty. From all the evidence, it does seem that Marlborough did not release any information that the French did not already have. My question is, did he know that the French already knew? The alleged letter disappeared very quickly, which I think is interesting in itself, as surely the French court would have kept such a damning correspondence. Marlborough's continual contact with the Jacobite court at Saint-Germain must be seen, I think, in the context of the day. There was always a likelihood that James II or his son might be restored throughout William's and Anne's reign as both failed to produce an heir. In fact, most of the English court were in contact with Saint-Germain during these years. Marlborough did not wish for or work towards a Jacobite restoration, but should it happen, was always mindful of the danger to his life, family and fortune. In the final analysis, I think on this occasion, Marlborough was a realist and not an ideologue. However, this contact with the Jacobites always ensured that William III and George I never really fully trusted him. The accusation that Marlborough continued the war of the Spanish succession beyond its logical conclusion is not so easily dealt with. No man did more militarily to bring that war to a speedy conclusion, but Marlborough was as much a statesman as a soldier and his performance at this level that must be examined. On the grand strategic level, Marlborough had a rare grasp of the issues involved and was able from the start of the war to see the conflict in its entirety. But the extension of the Allied war aims to include the replacement of Philip V as King of Spain was a mistake. The Allies came close to victory on several occasions, but the demand that Philip should abdicate forestalled any early end to the hostilities. Although the Duke lost his political influence in the latter stage of the war, he still possessed vast prestige abroad. Yet he failed to communicate his innermost conviction that peace was impossible without leaving Philip on the throne of Spain means, I think, he must bear some responsibility for the continuance of that war. Marlborough's weakness during Anne's reign lay in the English political scene. His determination to preserve the independence of the Queen's administration from control of party faction Initially enjoyed full support, but once royal favour turned elsewhere, the Duke found himself isolated. First becoming little more than a servant of the Whigs, then a victim of the Tories. He would not be the last military man who found politics a difficult battlefield. But despite these issues, most of his contemporaries saw Marlborough for what he was, a giant of the age. Even his old adversary, St John, Viscount Bolingbroke, recognised the Duke's qualities. Bolingbroke wrote, I take with pleasure this opportunity of doing justice to that great man, as the greatest general, and as the greatest minister that our country has ever produced. So having dealt with the accusation that has been used to abuse Marlborough, I now turn to his reputation as Britain's greatest ever general. I quote Captain Robert Parker, who served with Marlborough throughout all the major campaigns. And I quote, in the 10 campaigns he made against the French, he never fought a battle which he did not gain nor laid siege to a town which he did not take to many historians marlborough is the greatest british general in history an assessment that was shared by the duke of wellington who could conceive of nothing greater than marlborough at the head of an english army and if anyone should know it is the second greatest british general in history marlborough possessed the personal courage imagination common sense self-control and quick wits the mark the best battlefield commanders. He had an unerring ability to sense an enemy's weakness and the ability to manoeuvre to throw his enemy off balance. At Ramleys, for example, he fooled Villois by keeping the colours flying on his right wing, even though the regiments had marched to the left flank. Marlborough, though, was also an aggressive general. For example, he turned the Allied cavalry into shock troops who would charge to the point of contact and he used his artillery as a more mobile force than did the French. But it was in his identification of the potential of flintlock and socket bayonet to restore the offensive to warfare in an age when extensive fortifications and defensive mindsets dominated military thinking. No other general of the time had his predilection for fire and movement and the devastation of a coordinated all-arms attack. His troops laid the foundation of the mystique of the British Redcoat the rest of the 18th and 19th centuries, but many generals have mastered the skills required to win on the battlefield. Marlborough, though, had other attributes. It is said that while military historians talk tactics and strategy, professional soldiers talk logistics. Marlborough's attention to logistics allowed him to break free of his lines of communication. He also ensured that his troops paid in gold for those provisions that the enemy just took from the local peasants. In advance of his time, Marlborough introduced innovative medical services for his soldiers injured in battle. This concern for the welfare of the common soldier, his ability to inspire trust and confidence, and his willingness to share the dangers of battle, earned him the loyalty of his troops and the nickname Corporal John. It sounds simple, but Marlborough ensured that when his armies arrived at the battlefield, they were well paid, well fed, well clothed, well armed and ready to fight, and after the battle they were as well cared for. For this the rank and file repaid him with loyalty and bravery, and in addition to being a master logistician, Marlborough's other great skill was as the commander of a coalition army. This meant he had to tolerate politicians of many nations, allied generals from foreign armies, and useful fools gladly, a skill that Wellington, Haig, and Montgomery never mastered. Marlborough was the Master of Strategy, Tactics, Logistics and Coalition Management. To put it simply, John Churchill, 1st Duke of Marlborough, was Britain's greatest ever General.
0: This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio, in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.